Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Bit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to welcome everyone in the audience today. Thank you for taking time to be with us. Uh, Gigabit Nation is here to provide useful information and insights to help communities, companies, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband to everywhere it needs to be. So several uh, several weeks ago, we had a guest on, uh, Lori Sherwood, who's um, head of a 10-county project, uh, broadband project in Maryland, and I referred to her job as a chief cat herder since there were so many people and so many moving parts to the project. Um, but today, I think we're going to see cat herding taken to a much higher level. Um, our guest today is Damon Porter, who is managing director for the Mo Broadband Now uh, project in the state of Missouri. And so he's responsible for broadband projects across the state, broadband adoption, broadband infrastructure, the whole enchilada. So let's hear what it's like to be the top of this whole big process. Mm -hmm. Damon, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Craig, and I'm glad to be a part of this show. This is a really important uh, opportunity to spread the word and the gospel of broadband. There you go. There you go. We're actually, Damon and I, we're here at the um, Mo Broadband Now Summit, which has brought people from all over the state. Uh, I spoke earlier, and it was a very lively but also a very responsive crowd. And it seems like there's a lot going on, so I'm going to just start with um, give us an overview of the things that are going on. I know there's, like I said, there's a lot of stuff, but you know, tell us what we got going here in, in Missouri. Sure. So in 2009, Governor Nixon established Mo Broadband Now, which is really a public-private partnership. Um, he believes that this should be a grassroots initiative uh, effort with broadband providers at the table. And so what we do at Mo Broadband now are several things. We collect data that we use for mapping information. We work with internet service providers to get network information for state submissions. We are establishing regional technology planning teams. We provide technical assistance. We travel around and do outreach on the need for broadband accessibility and adoption. And the other important piece is that we have 18 um, projects going on in the state, about $261 million that came through the Recovery Act awards um, that we are using as the base for expanding broadband accessibility. Governor Nixon has set a very ambitious goal. He would like to see at least 95% of all Missourians with accessibility by the end of 2014. And when we started this effort, we were at about 78%. So we were trying to go from 78 to at least 95% in three years, four years. So that's a pretty ambitious goal. Mm -hmm. So so tell, <clears throat> tell us, how do you get so many communities and towns and stakeholder groups and providers all on the same page? And I want to look at it in two steps. One, you had to do the application that got the money in the first place. So I would assume there's like a need, a huge need assessment and planning process for that, applying for the money, but then you got the money and now you got to actually move the, this thing forward. So if, if we look at each of those stages, how do, you, how do you herd all those cats? Well, from our perspective, we were really, two trains were leaving the station at the same time. Some other states were really ahead of us in terms of understanding where the, the broadband underserved and unserved areas existed. We had a pretty good idea, but we were doing a lot of the data collection and mapping at the same time we were going for the federal grants uh, and loans. So during the round one process, we didn't do very well. When I say we, I mean the state of Missouri, as well as the broadband providers who actually submitted the applications. And at that time, Governor Nixon said, let's get everyone in the room. Let's figure out where we challenge are, where we can and then come up with a new, a new scheme. And so by putting everyone at the table, we were able to carve up the state so that all areas, geographic areas of the state were covered and that we made sure that we had the best providers who had the financial capital, who had the experience, the expertise to write good plans. And in that round two, we were very successful. So that train was moving at the same time we said, we really need to set a foundation of where, where broadband challenges exist. And uh, 
in accordance with that, we've worked with the regional planning commissions who have already been in existence for 30 or 40 years, have boots on the ground, really are working with local government and other kind of community stakeholders. We use those uh, organizations to set up these regional regional technology teams. So we're really moving down two tracks at the same time. We've got the construction projects going, and we're also doing this needs assessment uh, piece. Mm -hmm. So so here we are. Um, clearly, we have um, come a long way in a short period of time. Let's talk about the, the mechanism, because a lot of our audience wants to understand how to deal with these things, you know, how, how, how does it come together? You know, you obviously tapped into an infrastructure that already existed in terms of different committees and so forth, but maybe if there's like a one, two, three, how do you, how do you get there? Well, I think on the, on the planning side, there's just been a tremendous hunger and there's been a lot of um, desire, particularly in our uncertain, underserved communities to get better broadband accessibility. So. What I would suggest to anybody is there's always one or two folks, and no matter how big or small the community, they're very vocal, they're very outspoken, they're willing to roll up their sleeves and help you get started. And we have taken the approach here in Missouri uh, to say that state government or the state capital, we don't know what's best for communities. We want the communities to speak out. So we're not trying to develop cookie-cutter or one-size-fits-all approaches to the regional process. And I think that's where a lot of the buy-in came in. So when we invited people to come to the table to talk about broadband, we made it very clear. This is grassroots. This is bottom-up, not top-down, uh, that your input is critical. We are asking you to reach out to other stakeholders in your peer group and that you're going to write the plan. We're going to be here to help facilitate to make sure you stay on track, but you're going to write the plan. And the plan that you develop for one part of the state is not going to look like the plan for the other. Once you laid that kind of groundwork, you were able to get the buy-in and get the participation. And what we've seen uh, over the last eight, nine months that these teams have been in existence, people come back. And oftentimes you have that first meeting and there's a whole room full of people and they're excited. And then you have the second meeting and half the people show up. And then you have the third meeting and half of those of the half come. Not in our case. We still have people who are engaged. They show up at all the meetings and they're, they're active. Mm -hmm. Now, what... <clears throat> communication mechanism do you use to both alert and organize and to keep them engaged? Well, the interesting thing is that when you talk about broadband, it's kind of a, it's kind of a paradox in one regard because in order to reach the people who don't have broadband, obviously can't use online services. And so in a very kind of peculiar way, we've used traditional communication methods, word of mouth, uh, newspapers, uh, radio, television, that sort of thing. We do have an online presence. We do have a social media presence. But again, those areas where the, the connectivity is lacking, we have to use the kind of traditional route. One of the things I think has been interesting in our effort is um, we did a residential needs assessment. We wanted to figure out what people had in their home. Did they have computers? Did they have internet service? That sort of thing. So we went the old traditional survey route, paper survey. We send out 76,000 surveys, and if you know anything about marketing, when you send out an unsolicited direct mail piece, typically you get a 1% or 2% return rate. On a good day. On a good day, you get a 2% return rate. And we had about a 13% return rate, which is just absolutely phenomenal. It goes, again, shows that there's a <coughs> tremendous desire on the part of those who don't have service and it also makes the case for broadband providers who for a long time have said, you know, I'm not so sure community X or community Y really has the demand for the broadband. This survey, just by the fact of a 13% return rate, shows that uh, there's a lot of interest and a lot of hunger. Mm -hmm. Now, earlier today, um, I don't know if it was you or uh, Tim, but someone had mentioned outreach to the chambers of commerce. Was that part of the effort as well, or is that sort of a second stage? Or So uh, what we did as well is in addition to the residential survey, we, we reached out to business businesses, and we started with the state chamber, all of the local chambers, economic development sort of thing, because obviously the business needs for broadband are different than the residential needs. Uh, so we had two different types of surveys. And what we found, of course, on the residential side is 
the majority of folks wanted uh, broadband services to connect with friends and family, to do online education, uh, to be able to shop online, those sorts of things. The business survey, and the reason why we did a separate business survey is because this is really a question of economic development, economic vitality and sustainability. We know just from other research and data that the number one contributing factor for a business deciding to relocate or expand is whether or not the community has high-speed Internet. And so the, the survey that we targeted to the business community asked questions such as, how important is redundancy uh, in your business model? How important it is for you to be connected to other kind of commercial enterprises? Does your bandwidth capacity uh, need to be encrypted or uh, secure in certain types of fashions that maybe the residential customer doesn't need? So it was really for us important for us to segment, and we also got a very good response on the residential side, uh, mm -hmm. business side. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. um, what kinds of things were the businesses identifying as important to them? Was it all about speed? Was it all about redundancy? What were the factors they were? The speed issue is uh, is a universal problem. But on the business side, the speed is not so much the issue because businesses are willing to pay whatever it, it takes to right. get speed. The, the big issue is this notion of redundancy. If you only have one provider in your community, even if that provider is doing a fantastic job, the reliability is high, customer service is great, the price point is fine, the speed is great, businesses can't afford to have that fiber cut. They can't afford for that service to go down because that translates into closing the doors and sending everyone home for the day. And so for businesses, the most important thing is this notion of uh, multiple providers, redundancy, the ability for backhaul, the ability for cloud storage, <coughs> the ability of having large amounts of data and types of virtual inventory and that sort of thing. So they're willing to spend the money for the speed uh, if they can get it. It's this other issue of having uh, multiple uh, providers for the choice. And that seems to go at an interesting issue, which is we get lots of we hear about lots of complaints from usually incumbents in fact okay mostly incumbents who say you're overbuilding you know we already have broadband you shouldn't be overbuilding our space we're unfair competition what you're describing seems to pretty much justify uh if your goal is economic development which means that you're supporting your business communities then by default you need to have competition however you can get that in just to address the redundancy issue well, the way I would, and I, I don't disagree with what you said, I think I would I use slightly different words. Number one, I never use the word competition because to me competition suggests this kind of adversarial nature that one provider is, uh, has got to fight against another provider for that customer's attention. <clears throat> and I think the different model is to say that you can have multiple, multiple providers in one community and each of them are going to meet a different type of broadband need, whether it be on price point, whether it be on speed, whether it be on customer service issues, and they can all serve the same community and and get a share of the pie without them having to kind of cannibalize each other. So one of the things we talk about is choice doesn't necessarily mean competition. It doesn't have to translate into an adversarial competition environment. Second, Mo Broadband now really is committed to this public-private partnership type of initiative, meaning that for us to succeed, we really need to have all broadband providers at the table. But I think it's important for the incumbent providers, uh, large and small, for them to understand that their business model is going to have to change, that uh, they may have to invest in upgrading the network. They may have to spend more time on really reaching out to their customer base to figure out what they need. And so having them at the at the table, they start to see, hmm, maybe there's some things I need to change my business model to stay competitive uh, and give those folks the choice. Mm -hmm. So that <clears throat> would lead to situations such as uh, you identify, say, for example, uh, research needs where people are, are chasing after, you know, $100 million research grants. And with that comes certain data requirement and data storage requirement and so forth, whereas public safety has a different set of needs. And so subsequently, you can. it sounds like you envision 
different providers addressing those segments of the of the overall marketplace within the state. You're absolutely right. I mean, there are again, the providers have different um, customer bases that they're looking for. Some providers are saying we want to do a wholesale kind of distribution thing where we're only going to sell speeds at 100 meg or higher and then we're going to sell them to another internet provider who will break it up into smaller chunks uh, because they don't want that direct interface with customers. And so there's a market for those folks. And there's a market for folks who are say, listen, we're going to give very low speeds at a very affordable price for folks who just need basic kind of broadband needs but with that, we're not going to have a lot of customer interaction. And so there's different there's different mechanisms and models for each provider to have a place in the marketplace. Um, one of the other interesting things that you touched upon is that as we built out these planning teams and we have representatives on these planning teams who come from agriculture, energy, education, public safety, libraries, et cetera, oftentimes these folks they all recognized how important broadband was for their particular sector, but they didn't understand how having broadband in their sector overlapped with another sector. And what I mean by that is you may have a public safety entity who can go out and apply for a grant to get broadband <clears throat> to help from a law enforcement perspective. And that's great for law enforcement. But now that we have other people in the room uh, from other sectors, they can look and say, okay, if you're able to get the money and the resources to build out a network, how can we leverage this new infrastructure or this new network in a way that other parts of the community can share so that we defray and defer the cost. And so again, um, having all these folks in the room is allowing people to leverage all of the resources instead of just sharing them for one piece of the community's benefit to the detriment of others. Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> clearly getting people together is the first step, but how do you get people to understand broadband? Uh, one of the comments I heard, have heard over the last couple of days is that we, the industry, do a poor job of defining what broadband is and even what fiber is. So what did you do to help bridge that particular challenge? Well, I think that's probably the hardest challenge of it all, to be honest with you. The accessibility piece really is very easy. I mean, it's, it's just simply a matter of buying fiber, trenching the ground, and then putting it in and hooking up service. The harder part, the difficult part, and I think one that we haven't quite mastered and, and maybe others haven't mastered as well, is this notion of adoption. Those folks who could get service but choose not to. And the hard part about broadband, to, to a certain extent, is you know, how do you how do you visualize it? I mean, electricity is very simple. You flip the switch, the light comes on, people know, okay, I understand that. But with broadband, there are so many terms and so many definitions, and I think what we need to do is we need to have a clear, consistent message. We need to simple, simplify uh, all of these kind of high-tech terms down to very practical applications. So, you know, rather than saying one gigabit when people don't even know what a kilobit is, Saying, you know, saying, okay, one gigabit is you know, 100 times faster than X, or it's 1,000 times faster than this, or putting in the perspective of saying, if you wanted to download a standard movie that's two hours long, if you had this type of band bandwidth capacity, it would take you this long as opposed to this. Put it in real-world um, scenarios for people, and they start to make the connection. Really interesting story. Um, when we talk about trying to connect people and making them understand why broadband is important. I met a gentleman one time uh, from a rural part of Missouri. We were talking about how important broadband is on healthcare. And I said, you know, wouldn't it be great if you had broadband capabilities so uh, instead of you driving two hours to the doctor and the doctor running some tests and then you have to drive two hours back uh, to your home, you could just put some type of heart monitor on your chest plug it in with a USB port to your computer, look at him on a webcam, he can look <coughs> at you, and in five minutes he could make sure your heart's you know, going smooth and your blood pressure and all this sort of thing, and you go about your daily life. Now, I thought that that argument would be very convincing to this gentleman. didn't work. And then I said, well, you know, don't you get tired of waiting in the waiting room for two hours uh, when you're a public that new and you don't get to see the doctor till two? And then he said, by golly, you're right. You know, it's just not right that I have to stay in the waiting room for two hours uh, to see my doctor. So uh, the point I make there is 
you can get people engaged with broadband, and maybe it's from a kind of technical delivery standpoint that gets people interested. And sometimes it's just this notion of convenience. And so, again, I think as we talk about broadband and educating people on broadband, we have to be willing to tell the same story from different perspectives, from different lenses, and we really have to listen to the audience that we're trying to educate. First, understand what is it that they really need, what's important in their life, and how can we make their life easier? How can broadband provide a seamless transition uh, from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed, and it's seamlessly integrated into their life? And once you figure that out, then there's a right story to tell that will get them on board. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> I definitely agree. Uh, you know, having been a marketing person for twenty some odd years, that makes sense. One of the things I see that becomes interesting is that okay, so you bring people together, you identify broadband with basic needs that the average person can understand that has weight for the average person, but then you go out to the public or maybe it's the media and you say we're going to build a broadband network and we're going to do this list of things. And so the cynic, the the you know the investigative journalist or whatever, listens to the list and go, well that's not all that 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 special. I mean I think Kansas City had that issue where the Kansas City Star said, where are we going? Does this thing have a destination? Meanwhile, they brought you know a big group of stakeholders together for a full day brainstorming session, and when you read the report, there literally are a hundred and some odd ideas, and some of them are fairly pedestrian but they matter locally. On the flip side, the media says, well, why is this important? Why are, we, why are we spending all this money and energy just to do X? I mean, have you planned for that kind of uh, feedback? Or Yeah, we think about that. And again, with broadband, it's such a long continuum. Uh, you've got some people on one end of the spectrum where their needs are very pedestrian, very uh, simplistic. Uh, and on the other end, you are looking at folks who are trying to figure out, boy, if I had one gigabit of, of speed coming into my home, my business, I can think of all the possibilities. And so I think the best thing that we can do is to have conversations at the level of where people are. And so clearly in Kansas City, there's a lot of excitement about uh, this announcement by Google and the one gigabit service. Not everyone really knows what we're going to do with it. And at the end of the day, it's um, that's what makes the innovation and the entrepreneurial spirit of this whole broadband conversation so great. We'll come up with 100 ideas. Maybe only one or two will be successful. But it's that putting all the ideas out, you know, teasing them out, kind of running the logistics on it, uh, that in the long run is going to do – uh, more for stimulating the economy, for getting people connected than if we just say, well, here's the five things you can do with broadband. Go forth and do those five things and, and be happy. And so you need all sides of the of the, of the coin involved. So I'm really excited about the one gigabit uh, deployment by Google. I'm excited about the opportunity of having a one gigabit network in the uh, Columbia, Missouri area with gig.u. And, and I think the more you see that, the faster we're going to get to uh, really having a one gigabit nation. We won't be talking about 10 megabits or our 20 megabit nation. We're going to be talking about a com- completely connected one gigabit nation. Interesting. Okay, uh, then that makes a lot of sense. Now, you've outlined a number of you know research steps that you guys did and surveys and so forth. Are you packaging those vehicles, those research tools up, so that uh, at the local level people can do, in essence, the same thing, but obviously they would get it, their data from you know a specific county perspective or a city perspective. So the, the beauty of having these 18 regional technology planning teams is that we are taking all of the data and we can carve it, we can slice it, we can put it in package in any kind of way <coughs> that you want. And so now that we... Uh, really completed the needs assessment phase, we're doing several things. We're taking the statewide um, data map and we're breaking it down to 18 regional maps, which will allow people to drill down to a much more smaller level what's going on in the community. We're taking the statewide information that we had on our business and residential service, <clears throat> we're segmenting that down to the regional level. We are also working with partners using our data to look at different industry sectors. So a couple of weeks ago, for example, the University of Missouri took some of our data 
and did a study on how broadband impacts agriculture and impacts the uh, agribusiness sector of our community. Uh, and so we hope to do additional types of reports in the future, being able to take the information and figure out how it's important for tourism, how it's important for economic development, how it's important for education, figuring out where our strengths are, where our weaknesses, where the op opportunities exist. Um, so once you have that data, you can do all kinds of things with it. Now, of course, the thing we have to keep in mind is that data is only as good as the day the data was issued. And so at some point, we're going to have to go through this exercise again of you know, sending out 76,000 surveys again and then, <laughs> then doing another round of business surveys and that sort of thing. We'll probably do that in 2013. Um, but, uh, yeah, we are definitely trying to segment the data so that it's useful for people uh, in answering the questions that they have. Mm -hmm. One thing I'm <clears throat> I'm a little curious about, so we get studies out of D.C. sometimes, and they'll say, uh, you know, broadband represents some X hundreds of thousands of jobs, and the 2% adoption rate re represents X or Y economically, right? Um, and then I do a survey where I ask economic development folks, okay, so if you wanted to do this type of application or if you wanted to bring new businesses in, you know, what's the minimum speed that you have? Is... Um, how valuable is having all of that, you know, that big picture, if you get a 2% penetration, whatever, whatever, you get some sort of result. I mean, when you guys are doing this planning at the state level, is that the data that makes the most sense, or is it the, you know, 100 businesses telling you that if they had X, they would get Y? Well, from the data that we've collected, it's the latter more than the former. We don't have a very systematic way of, translating our data to say, if you do X, this is the kind of output you're going to get. Uh, certainly, we'd like to be able to do that. Maybe at some point we will find a, a, a partner who we can work with who can help us quantify the data because I think it is very important. I think it's really important in particular for communities when they're trying to make the case uh, of attracting a business or you know, convincing the business to expand or stay in a particular community. They need that kind of economic data to make the case of why uh, you know a bank needs to make a loan or why the further investment needs to be done in the community in terms of infrastructure or those types of things. So um, you know you raise a great point, and I think that's something we ought to be looking at. And hopefully, we can find a, a partner to help us uh, translate that data into that kind of that kind of model. Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> I'm I'm guessing, assuming that you have contacts with your counterparts in other states. Do other states take the same kind of distributed management tack that you guys are? I mean, you have you have uh, 18, in essence, sub-planning committees, and then everything kind of rolls up, and occasionally it rolls down, but it, it comes through that structure. Do other states have a similar structure, do you know? You know, this is, I think we need to have a conference of just, uh, state uh, directors of broadband projects because to be quite honest with you, I haven't really had much contact uh, directly with other states on what they're doing. Now, I, I'm certainly taking a look at what they're doing. I'm going out, I'm looking at their websites, I'm looking at their Twitter pages, their Facebook pages, and I, and I hope they're doing the same uh, with no broadband now. Uh, my guess is, just from the websites that I've looked at, each state is doing this a little bit differently, and it really depends on where the states are in terms of accessibility. Uh, it depends on how much uh, kind of ARA awards the state receives during the kind of stimulus round. It really depends on what their focus is from whoever's in the Office of Governor or who's in charge of running this project. There are some similarities. I think Wisconsin, I, I have seen, they've kind of taken this regional broadband approach where they've got these small teams uh, working on these smaller regional plans. Other states have kind of taken one state approach where they have a state task force or a state committee and they're kind of looking at the state as a whole. So um, each state's doing a little bit differently, and I think that's okay. I mean, I think, again, to solve the broadband needs, you really need to start with what need how we get to them as fast as possible what are the challenges that exist in each state um, you know I think connect Ohio is doing a great job 
but they have different challenges than we do. We're, Ohio is a much more densely compact state. You've got a lot of uh, cities with populations of a million or more there, where here in Missouri you've got large swaths of, of the state that are underserved, unserved, rural in nature. So uh, I hope maybe we can convene some type of summit or conference where all of us can get together and share best practices because I really would like to know more about what the other states are doing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Do you feel that um, that you get adequate support in this area of, say, best practices from the agencies that have given out the money? I mean, I know there was some sort of conference that the RUS folks had for their uh, grant recipients uh, just a few weeks ago, and it seemed to be around the idea of bringing their awardees together to talk about issues and, and help people move forward. Does, does NTIA have a similar, or has done they done something similar? Do you know of? You know, I don't. I don't know. Um, uh, I have not. As a matter of fact, I haven't attended the RUS uh, conference as well. I know from here in Missouri, RUS and the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture have been very involved and engaged with our providers and the progress and status of the construction projects. Mm -hmm. Partly that is the fact that of the 18 projects, 16 of them are last mile projects, which is under agriculture. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there may be some other states that are doing more of the middle mile piece and therefore uh, the larger share bulk of their awards came from NTIA, but I haven't really heard of NTIA having any type of conference or mm -hmm. Okay. It just seems like, you know, no. Saying, I know it's not yours to drive that process. It just seems like one of those footnotes of wouldn't it be good if kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, I, I, I really think now that all of the states or most of the states have some type of state initiative or state project up and running, uh, whatever phase you're in, um, I think now it would be a good time to convene everyone together, and, and I don't know who would be the right person to convene that, but I think it's probably the right time. You know, when I came on board about a year ago, uh, Mobra Band now didn't have a website. We we had a we were just making sure all of the providers were getting all of the clearance and filling out the last bits of paperwork. We had established one single team. And so in the last 12 months, we've just been going so hard, so fast to get all of this up and running. I'm sure a lot of other states are in the same boat. So I think in 2012, now that we'll have the ability to take a little bit of a breather, uh, <laughs> that we can come together. I think that we can, we can do that. And certainly, you know, I would be uh, willing to host the other 49 states <laughs> from an economic development standpoint. I'd have to be happy to host them here in Missouri. So let the word come out that, you know, Missouri could be, you know, ground central for bringing all of these uh, working groups uh, together. Now, you've uh, we're at the midpoint of the session today. Um, what kind of feedback <clears throat> are you getting? Because I know there are a number of states, uh, I think Vermont is having something similar this weekend. Uh, other states have had it where basically states are convening a, a summit like this to bring all of those toiling in the name of broadband under one roof for at least a day. Mm -hmm. What kind of feedback are you getting from the attendees? Well, uh, this morning I think it has just been overwhelmingly positive response, and and I think uh, we've seen an uptick in participation. So last year was our first annual summit. We had about 260 folks uh, participate, mostly on the provider side and kind of government agencies. This year uh, we have about 360, 370 people, so we've a dramatic increase in participation. And the attendees really cut across all different sectors. So, in addition to the, the providers, and now we have vendors, we have we have other people who are doing kind of the, the backhaul issues of uh, broadband who are coming to the table. We have more school superintendents, county commissioners, people in law enforcement who all recognize that broadband um, is a necessity, not luxury. They're showing up for the summit. <coughs> One of the things I would like to do, and again, as I mentioned before, just we were so busy this year trying to get everything up and running and didn't have time to do it. What I'd like to do in 2013 is not just have this kind of broadband summit once a year, although I think this is important because it's really good to recap and reflect on all of the accomplishments of the year. 
But what I'd like to do is I'd like to take this on the road. Uh, I'd like to have many broadband summits. Maybe they're a day, maybe they're half a day. So that we are, again, back in the communities in the town hall format where uh, it's not here in the state capitol with all of the kind of policy leaders and that sort of thing, but we're really in the communities uh, where people can come and, and talk about this issue. That's one. And two, I'd like to start doing some more online uh, broadband summits. Now that we have our website up, now that people know where to go, we're directing traffic in the right place. Uh, it's a lot easier to convene speakers such as yourself who you know, flew in for this summit, but if you can't do that, we can put you on Skype or some other mechanism and have an yeah. online summit. So, exactly. And, and the thing and <clears throat> that is we can tap into more expertise and more uh, experienced people who uh, can really share their thoughts. So that's my goal for 2012 is to kind of take this to a more grassroots level. Mm -hmm. So uh, before switching topics a little bit, um, <clears throat> I wanted to point out one of our uh, guests in the chat room here, she's uh, one of my regulars actually from, from the UK, but she had talked about the fact that, um, you know, speeds as an issue of sort of rallying people around and getting them to understand and getting them supporting broadband isn't necessarily a winning topic. What is the thing that resonates is the idea of future-proofing that if you go through the effort and you put all this stuff in place, <clears throat> as I mentioned today in my session, you know, it's like you, you do have an expense, but it's a much lesser expense to add the new technology at the endpoints of the infrastructure to increase the speed, but it's not like you have to rip it all out and do it over again. And she says that future-proofing is really what's driving their call for greater speed. So they are, they are asking for speed, per se, you know, specifically, but it's in the context of not speed for speed sakes, but speed, you know, for the future-proofing mm -hmm. aspect. Mm -hmm. and so I'm assuming that that, that future-proofing aspect gets a good audience here, too. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, um, as I mentioned before, we have 18 uh, broadband projects that, that are part of the Mo Broadband Initiative. But we're not just stopping there. And one of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to get a lot of folks who are really interested in doing this, who are sitting on the sidelines saying, you know, I want to do this, but this is a big investment. This is a big cost. Not sure that I'm going to get the return on the rate. We are trying to make them understand that there is a business model, um, an economically viable business model, no matter what size the community is, and that your best investment is for the future. Mm -hmm. And uh, people have to make the case the best are the broadband providers who are in it now. And we have some broadband providers who were a little, you know, skeptical at first about making huge investments. And now they're saying, you know, this is something we're putting in the ground not just for the next 10 years. This is something that we can put in the ground for the next 50, 60, 70 years. And so if you look at broadband from an infrastructure standpoint, the same way we looked at electric power lines, the same way we looked at interstate highways, the same way we looked at railroad lines. If you look at it as a really long-term investment, not something that you're going to get the return on your investment tomorrow, but something that's built in to accommodate and adapt to the changes in technology, to changes in the need for increased speed, whatever comes down the road, it's, it's your best bet to do that. And so, yeah, I think all of our providers get that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I'm also getting some follow-up commentary that uh, – uh, she also likes the idea of the traveling show, you know, the colloquiums, I think is how they call it over in the U in her part of the UK. But it's it's about getting out into <clears throat> the community. I mean, the, of the many things that the FCC did for its broadband planning, one that I thought was a good effort was having the commissioners go out to different communities and having seminars or colloquiums that were also live streamed across the internet. Yes, that's true. <clears throat> now, one of the things I will say that uh, I, I kind of take issue with the, the broadband plan is it, it appears to me that they kind of established a two-tier uh, level of, of need, if you will. If you, if you kind of read the broadband plan, it almost suggests that rural uh, parts of the U.S., rural parts of Missouri, 
their their need uh, for certain types of speeds are less than kind of urban areas. It seems like they kind of segmented urban and rural. Exactly. Two different areas. And, uh, you know, for a state like Missouri, <coughs> where rural Missouri is very important, just as you know, St. Louis and Kansas City and Springfield are important, we kind of put that piece to the side. Um, we believe if you live in a community such as Millersburg that has 200 uh, residents, you deserve the same level of speed, you deserve the same level of bandwidth as someone who lives in Kansas City that has 500,000 people. And so uh, you know, I, I certainly commend uh, federal government and FCC for putting out the National Broadband Plan. I think it's the right way to go. Certainly we need to have a, a framework and a roadmap. But uh, I, I do take issue a little bit about this notion that somehow rural Missouri doesn't need the same type of speed or the same type of uh, options as urban and suburban areas. We can't, we can't have that. If Missouri is going to be globally competitive, we need every part of Missouri to have that same capacity to reach out, no matter who their customer, no matter who the connection is. Um, we can't have two-tiered approach. Right, and I'm a big advocate of that because I feel like uh, you know, it's a, it's a ridiculous requirement. And in fact, in my survey of economic development professionals, pretty much across the board, they pan the lower requirement, the four down, one up, or whatever that ritual is. You know, because from an economic development standpoint, we're talking about things like home-based business. We're talking about distance learning. We're talking about taking your average worker and making them either retrain for another industry or improving their ability to work in the industry that they're in. And to do those kinds of things, there is a requirement for speed and capacity. And so <clears throat> that doesn't change if you're a home-based business in rural Missouri or if you're in you know, Chicago. The, 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 the speed, if you're going to run a business and take orders and all that stuff, it's got to be at, at a certain level, you know, and, well, you're exactly right, and one of the great things, and I think one of the reasons why Missouri will be a leader in information technology for many years to come is that we've got three interesting type of one gigabit networks in play. So in Kansas City, you have the Google Fiber Project, which is, is deploying one gigabit to homes and businesses and kind of the conventional deployment scheme. Then you have the Gig.U uh, initiative in the center part of the state, which is focusing around research institutions, universities. But then you have this other component on the St. Louis side, uh, and a gentleman who's at our summit who is talking about how to create one gigabit networks in a very microcosm, uh, uh, small environment area. And so there's a project on the St. Louis side with a group of people called the St. Louis Cloud Coalition. They're looking at developing a one gigabit network um, down a corridor of, of, of downtown University City that's only about two or three miles long. Now, one of the things that's very interesting to me about that, and we're having conversations with those folks, is that it's not economically viable for a small town of 5,000 to perhaps deploy one gigabit service to every home and business when the population density is two or three or four homes per mile. It is definitely possible for a small community of 5,000 to say, we have a very historic main street or historic downtown that has dried up over the years as people have kind of moved out of the area where, yeah, we can maybe look at building a quarter mile, a half mile, a one mile, one gigabit stretch down our old historic downtown and creating new entrepreneurial incubators, new innovation centers, uh, encouraging large conglomerate corporations or international businesses headquartered somewhere else in the world to invest in maybe a satellite office or a satellite operation in a very small community, that's an economic viable uh, model, but you still keep the one gigabit level of service. So, um, again, I think, uh, as we said before, the National Broadband Plan totally missed the point that rural parts of the state, rural parts of Missouri, can't have one gigabit or ultra-high-speed networks, maybe on a smaller level, maybe in a more smaller capacity, but the speeds are there to do the things that uh, they need to do and be globally competitive. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I want to talk about financial sustainability for a minute. What have either you and your group from the state level or what do you see at the uh, regional levels with these planning committees, how are people determining the financial sustainability of their approach? Do they have like models or do they 
use a Ouija board? I mean, what's, <laughs> what's, uh, what's the magic there? Well, certainly for the 18 projects that um, received Recovery Act uh, awards, the financial model is is, is a lot easier because um, a portion of the awards is, is the grant, so it helps kind of defer the cost. Uh, the, the, the challenge for those folks who are looking at broadband projects is how do you make it economically viable when you have a density rate of two or three or four or five homes per mile. And, uh, you know, I am very optimistic. I think there's some new types of modeling. There's some, some partners that are working with some of our construction partners who have come up with the types of patents and abilities of node splitting and, and uh, uh, segmenting the fiber in a way from an IPTV standpoint where everyone can get the service but uh, keeping the cost down. And I think as we move forward in the technology in terms of the hardware and the equipment gets better and the prices come down, it will make it a lot easier for new investment, new private providers to come in so I can make an economic case. The other thing that I think is very uh, exciting is that the FCC did announce that they are shifting $4.5 billion from uh, traditional subsidizing of telephone service over to the new Connect America Fund. Now, $4.5 billion from a you know, total investment in the U.S., that's not a lot of money. But when you think about the amount of money that was spent on the stimulus, which I think was about $11 billion over two years, now we're talking $4.5 billion every year. This is going to help inject a little bit more money into the process so that some of these projects that initially are not economically viable because of the density issue, we can deploy the broadband, we can get the fiber out, and again, over time, 10 years, 15, 20 years, it will pay back. And again, if we look at this from an infrastructure standpoint, not something that we expect to get a return on the investment tomorrow, but something that's long-term, uh, then I think there's a good business case for that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, this morning I, I presented to the the audience a fa- you know a fairly diverse set of options. You know, it's the the community can own the network and have services provided by the private sector. Uh, communities and private sector companies could own both the infrastructure and the service. And then you obviously have cases where one party or the other runs the whole shebang. What kinds of models or at least variations on some of the things that I presented today do you think are going to take hold in the next two years or so? I don't think um, cities and counties, for the most part, are going to want to take the the plunge in terms of building networks and owning them and maintaining themselves. I think you're going to see much more of these hybrid type of models, uh, either the kind of traditional private provider coming in, that was a little bit luck to come into a particular community. And now that we are armed with all of the data, we're armed with all of the information, we're armed with a very uh, active and engaged community from all sectors saying we want to see this, that the, the business model will, will sort itself out and then you'll just see private providers building network, maintaining and operating it. Or you'll see, I think, some type of hybrids, particularly with the co-ops here in Missouri, uh, we have a very strong and active electric cooperative. Uh, many of the broadband projects that are going on are by electric co-ops. I'll give you an example. One is um, an electric co-op called Como Electric. They are in the Lake of the Ozark area, which is kind of a very tourist, second home type of area of the state. They had applied for our funding. They were unsuccessful in getting our funding. Uh, and they could have just, you know, packed up the tent and went home and said, well, I guess we're not going to have a broadband project. They went back out to their community and said, okay, we're not going to be able to build out all of this community as uh, who are electric customers all at once. But we're going to target two areas of our service area as pilot projects. And if the folks in those areas will agree to put their money where their mouth is, which means put up a $100 deposit, sign a contract committing for at least one year of service, Sight unseen before any dirt was turned. And if you could get 35% of those folks to agree to do that, we'll build the project. Uh, that's exactly what happened. The, the, the folks in that community rallied around and said, yes, sight unseen, here's our money, here's our contract, go build it. And so, uh, again, from our conversation uh, today, 
the more education, the more awareness, the more outreach you can do, the more you make people understand why this is important to them, why this is going to change, it's going to be a quantum leap change for them, the investment will come. Uh, I think what we need to look at, not so much is it a public-private partnership, is it city, is it county, is it all private, it's a question of how do you get the community engaged and say, yes, we're willing to take the service. And if you get that, then they'll build it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's kind of interesting because in Utah with the Utopia Project, they have a similar approach, which is basically um, put up the money if this is what you want, and this is what we'll do. We'll bring this service to you. And they gave them an option of they could put one large payment down or they could have a monthly payment coming out of their utility bill or tacked on. However, they, they do the, the mechanics, <clears throat> which, by the way, is covered in one of my previous uh, episodes, so if people want to check that out, um, Todd Marriott was the guest that day to talk about Utopia. But the idea is that what you're describing is innovative, but you're also not alone, which is a good thing because that proves that other people are thinking along these lines, and I think that makes a lot of sense, you know, to say, look, you know, we we need to all be investors in the technology, number one. And number two, it's like a point I made to the, earlier today in my presentation, we have to think new ways of how we do what we do, new ways of forming partnerships and bringing folks in. No, you're exactly right. And one of the things I'm really concerned about, and I say concerned, is that those communities that have high high density, you know, uh, community X that has 30, 40, 50 homes per, per mile, those projects are easy. That's the low-hanging fruit. Everybody rushes in to do the next. Yes, indeed. You know you're going you know to make a go of it. <clears throat> Similarly, I think oftentimes those communities that have very, very low density, two home, three home, four home, five home, uh, homes per mile, there will be, I think, over the coming years, more funding mechanisms either through federal government or other areas to help fund those issues because you will make no money on those. The thing I'm concerned about are those communities that are in the, let's say, 10, 15, 18 homes per mile. They're not big enough to be low-hanging fruit. They're not small enough to really be eligible for some of these types of um, grants and awards that are coming out to really get underserved communities <coughs> connected. The difficulty for them is finding um, an investor. Because if you go to the bank and you say to the bank, to the bank I need $50 million to build a broadband network, the first thing they're going to say is, well, what's your collateral? Well, my collateral is the fiber. The bank says, well, uh, if you don't pay the loan, are you telling me you're going to pull the fiber out of the ground and give it back to me? Well, no, of course that's not going to happen. <laughs> so that even if you convince a bank at that initial stage that uh, collateral is not important, that you're going to build it. The next question the bank says is, Okay, well, how many customers are you going to get? Well, you know, there are 5,000 people living in the, in the community, and we hope to get X number of them. Well, can you guarantee you're going to get those customers? No, I can't guarantee it. So, again, we need to bring financial institutions, we need to bring you know, venture capitalists, the investment bankers, those types of people to the table as well to get them to change their thinking and saying, listen, I know from a banking standpoint <coughs> where you're very risk-averse and you have a very conservative lending model, uh, when you look, on, look at it on paper, this doesn't make sense. Trust me, if we build it and we make the case and we get the community involved and they understand that after the infrastructure is built, there are uses and applications for broadband, there will be a return on investment. You should invest in this. We need to get those financial institutions um, to the table as well because otherwise I think we're going to see another type of digital divide, which is those communities in the middle not getting served. Right. Now, you know, I, I'm looking, I'm reading this uh, uh, commentary from one of the guests in, in the chat room, and she's describing a process <clears throat> in which in those hard-to-reach communities, the people in the communities are digging their own trenches. They're basically being told how to do it and given access to the equipment and they dig their own trenches, and they are paid in shares in the network. Mm-hmm. I mean, plus the fact they get to use the service. So, and in fact, some of the service providers, like uh, account, uh, lawyers and accountants that are involved, are also paired, paid in shares. So, in essence, <clears throat> it is making the community an investor by saying, "Look, you know, digging a trench isn't necessarily that difficult, especially if you're a farmer." And you've built, you know, you you put in your own aqueducts, you put in your own infrastructure to run the farm. 
that you probably even have the equipment. You know, I think that is pretty novel, and I think it gets over the hurdle because clearly the biggest uh, hurdle is the actual putting the stuff in the ground. You know, that's an uh, interesting um, that's an interesting model. I'd certainly like to learn learn more about that. If there's places I can go to learn about that, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm just thinking off the top of my head. A couple of things that you know I would be concerned about. Number one is and building, digging trenches and, and kind of putting fiber in the ground on one hand seems very uh, easy, and I'm sure it is from a uh, looking at a textbook fashion. One thing I'd be concerned about is if one person doesn't build it correctly, uh, the network in some way may not work properly for everybody. Mm-hmm. So there is a level of expertise and there is a level of, of uh, sophistication to these things in terms of making sure the network speaks to each other mm-hmm. properly. The other thing I think is that, you know, as much as I like to see neighbor helping neighbor, and certainly we need some of that, we want communities to be involved, we also don't want to put people out of work who uh, who have businesses to do this. And so, right. uh, you know, I, I, again, I'd like to make the case to to investors why it's important for them to help invest in these projects. And we also want to put people to work, and we want to people, put people to work who have the experience, the knowledge, and expertise to do this, too. So, right. um, yeah, I mean, I think at, to a certain level we should look at that, and I'm, if there's more information out there, please. I've got a, I've got okay. a URL to, to, to go for. It's actually uh, www.b4m.org.uk. <clears throat> B4M. Uh-huh. .org. .uk. Okay. I mean, I think there, what this speaks to is a, an approach. Now, it probably needs refining for, you know, here in the U.S. It probably would need refining for certain types of markets. But I also <clears throat> think it represents a meet-me-halfway thing as well. You know, so instead of having to pay $100,000 to wire up a community, maybe it costs 50000 you know, you still put some people to work, but if they're definitely not going to make the investments at all and your option is none, then clearly, you know, someone's willing to get out there and, and do it. Because then all you're really talking about is you send in a consultant. I mean, that's the person that kind of makes sure all the stuff lines up and, you know, that you don't have those glitches you talked about. But, you know, it comes back to my thing earlier today about, we so much have to think outside of how we have thought before. And we have to look at these things very differently. And we also have to involve the communities because they have the pain, but they also may have the solution. And they've got to use a solution. So it's, you know, they're going to have a vested interest in doing it right. But they also have a, a high motivator to, to be that part of it. So we've got about <clears throat> two minutes. What are maybe two things for the statewide view, so if you're a statewide coordinator, what are two things that you would recommend they do to get these things off the ground and stay on track? Well, the first thing is, and these are kind of my looking back now on what I should have done differently type of thing. So I have two pieces of advice. Number one, as you are uh, developing your plans, the most important thing is, I think it's really important to have as many local stakeholders at the table. You can never have enough. Uh, I think I started off saying, well, if I have 20 people in my region working on this project, that's great. No, I think you really need to go deeper than that. And again, it just depends on your population and geography size. But here in Missouri, on my 18 regional teams, I would start over now saying I want 100 people in the room at every meeting. And yes, it's a little wild and a little hard to control on the people, but I would rather have 100 than 20 in the room. One thing I would say for state folks as they're getting invested, how the two or three sectors of your state economy are the most important. Here in Missouri, we're the number two uh, agriculture leader. So we are making a big investment now in agriculture and in agriculture sectors. Find the two or three uh, key parts of your economy, get all of those people, and do kind of one-off pilot projects with them to really get those members involved because if you get those folks involved, not only are you going to stimulate the broadband projects, but you're going to get major sectors of the economy growing in the economy that we're in now. You want to be able to stimulate as much job growth as possible. Excellent. And that's going to be our show. 
Damon, I want to thank you very, very much for being my guest today and having me as a, a speaker at this conference. It's been a really great experience here, and I wish you guys all the best of luck. And you got to let me know when you're going to take this show on the road. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the time, and please come back and see us either physically or online. Yeah, there you go. I also want to thank our uh, media partners, GigaOM, Broadband Communities Magazine, MuniWireless.com, and Community Broadband Networks. Thank you, guests, uh, for being here today. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, I'm taking a hiatus for a couple days, but we'll be back next week uh, and uh, more, more Gigabit Nation. So thank you. Have a great day.